Colossians chapter 3. That's where we're looking at what we're looking at today. We're looking at the first 14 verses. And so as you find that text, I'm reading out of the ESV translation. I'm not sure the translation that you normally use, but I'm using, I'm using the ESV. We're going to, like I said, look at the first 14 verses of this sweet, sweet letter. Let me read it for you, but as I do, I'm going to invite you to stand as I, as I walk through it with you. Paul is the writer. This is the inspired word of God, and he writes, beginning in verse 1, again, chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Let me just pause here before we do anything else and, and pray. Uh, Father, we love your word and has been my prayer this week, even this morning already. I, I again pray it now that, that you would do today through your word everything that you have promised to do through your word. That you would sanctify us, meaning you would set us apart by way of your word. You'd mature us. That this would be a time that would be profitable to us. That you would train us and correct us and admonish us and encourage us. That you would go to dark places places where division takes place, places that, that even we are too scared to go to. I, I, I pray for all of this. Uh, we also believe, coming out of what Paul writes in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And so I pray, if there are people here today that have joined us who don't know you, I pray that they become people of faith today. That your word, which is living and active, a, a seed that grows would would land on good soil, receptive soil, and that today would be a day of salvation. And for those of us who know you, believe in you, would say, yes, we have been saved by you, then I pray that you would further them along today, again, by way of your word, uh, the precious, precious word that is ours. And I pray for these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Um, in, the, in the early 2000s, I attended something down in San Diego called the National Pastors Conference. And one of the things on the schedule that week, in fact, it's on the schedule every time they do it, is something called morning devotions. If you want to get up early in the morning, you can go to a, 
to a room, a, a, a ballroom in the, in the convention hall, and, and somebody will lead you in those morning devotions. And the year that I went, the person leading the morning devotions was Dallas Willard. That's a good get. If you can get Dallas Willard leading morning devotions at any conference, again, that's a good get. If you don't know the name, Dallas Willard was a prolific author who wrote most often on the spiritual disciplines and and spiritual formation. He was also a philosophy professor at USC. So if you ever think you've arrived and done a lot in life, just compare yourself to that bio. But Dallas, a big fan of Dallas Willard. I still am, even though he passed uh, by way of cancer in, in 2012. Here's the reason why I bring him up. On one of the mornings, he was, as he was leading, he started talking about Bible memorization. And, and what he said in that moment was, if he had to choose just a few texts to memorize, the one we're looking at would be one of those texts. And, and I understand why, because the, the book of Colossians, and I know many of you know the book of Colossians, you've studied it, but it's one of my favorites. It's a sweet, sweet letter. It's a, a Jesus-centered letter, like few others. But the texts that we're looking at, these 14 verses in chapter 3, are really the the cherry on top of it, sweetness, so to speak. But, but there's a problem with the 14 verses as well. And, and the problem with them is there's just so much in them, so much that we just don't have time to look at today. And so what I want to do with the time that we do have is I'm going to take these 14 verses and I'm going to whittle them down to just two features that, that jump out from amongst all of the goodness within it. Two features and two features only. Those two features, and I'll give them to you on the front end, and then we'll double back and hit them one at a time. The first is this. We are going to look at the promises of the Christian life. That's number one. Feature number one, it jumps out. The second is we are going to look at the practices of the Christian life. That's, that's our outline. Very simple outline. The promises and the practices of the new you. So let's begin, double back, like I said, on the promises. Paul highlights three. He mentions three promises that come out of the first four verses. If you have your Bibles open, just notice them with me. The first promise is seen in verse 1 where he writes that you have been raised with Christ. The second, the second promise is seen in verse 3 where he writes that your life is hidden with Christ. And then the third shows up in verse 4, you will appear with Christ. There they are. Raised hidden and appear with Christ. What, what astonishingly wonderful promises. But as wonderful as they are, I hesitate referring to them as promises only because of the verb tense used with the ver first two of them. Just again, double back, look, at we, uh, look with me at verse 1, where Paul tells us there that we have been raised with Christ. And verse 3, where he tells us that we are hidden with Christ. In other words, and I want us to taste this, something has taken place in the past that is our reality now if you are in Christ. These aren't promises of something to come, in other words, but are ours today. In fact, Paul hammers down even further on this idea. If you notice in verse 3, when writing there, you have died. Not one day will die, but have died already. Are we getting this? Are we hearing this? I know it's early, but are we hearing what Paul 
is saying is ours. I, I want to make sure we all have this right, so let me go through this one more time and just check my math, so to speak, okay? If you are in Christ, you have already had a death and resurrection experience, and therefore you are a new you. And one day that new you will appear with Jesus in glory, but in the meantime, you are hidden with Jesus. Do I have that right? I think that's right. I think that's what Paul is telling us here in this first couple of verses. But here's the question that perhaps some of you are asking in your own heads. What does it mean? I mean, what does this mean? Norm, how can this be? Well, let's see if we can figure it out by going back through these promises, and I'll, I'll call them promises slash realities, because, as I said, they are true today. So let's look at them one, one at a time, beginning this time chronologically with, you have died. That's verse 3. What is Paul talking about here? Well, it's probably not necessary to say, but Paul obviously isn't referring to a physical death but a death of another kind, uh, a spiritual kind, uh, a kind that he describes in verse 9 as the putting off of the old self, meaning that's who's died. Your old self died, the self before Christ, the, the self born in Adam, the self that was by nature a child of wrath, that the self that had been born but needed to be born again, that self is dead. That's what Paul means. But how did that self die? Well, not of natural causes, but of super, supernatural ones. The, the fact of the matter is Jesus killed it. I, I don't mean to shock you, but Jesus is a mass murderer of a, a divine kind. He's the best kind of serial killer. That, that's who Jesus is. Jesus took your old self with its practices to the grave and buried it there. And that self stayed there with the new self coming out in its place, which leads us naturally to the second promise slash reality, and that is you have been raised. Verse 1. The old self died with Christ, the new self raised with Christ, and to be very clear, because I don't think we grasp this like we should, when we talk about coming out raised with Christ, what came out of the grave was not a be better version of the old you, but an entirely new you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Paul asks, in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the reality that water baptism paints a picture of today. What is water baptism all about? What paints a picture of what Jesus did for us and what we have realized in Jesus. It's wondrous, but there's more. 
For whereas your old self was entirely about you, your new self is entirely about Jesus. As your heart is changed and your affections are, are turned towards Jesus. As Paul affirms in Philippians 1.21 when declaring there, For me to live is Christ. Adding in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Peter adds this in, in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. It's so great. But we have to keep on going because there's more. You have died with Christ. Number one, you have been raised with Christ. But third, and now, verse three, you are hidden with Christ. The new you is hidden with Christ in God, which means what? Well, it speaks of protection. There is more that we'll get to, but it certainly speaks of protection. Psalm 27, verse 5, For God will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays that I do not ask that you take them out of the world, praying to his Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. So being hidden in Christ, with Christ, in God, speaks of protection, but there's more. It also speaks of assurance. Our hiddenness with Christ assures us that God is working to keep us secure in our relationship with him. This is precious truth, especially for those of us who struggle with us, this idea. That, that maybe, maybe we're done. That maybe God is done with us. But as we go here, we see that's not true. We are hidden with Christ in God, which speaks of assurance. This again, going back to the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, keep them, keep them in your name. Romans 8, 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, not even you. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this. Here's the assurance language. I'm, a, I'm sure of this, that he who began a, a work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Jude verses 24 and 25, only one chapter in Jude. Great doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we are hidden with Christ, which speaks of protection. It speaks of assurance, but there's something even more to this hiddenness than protection and assurance. Something, something that I've been thinking about all week. Um, I, I can't get it off me. Um, and and I, I, want you to, I want you to taste it too. Being hidden with Christ also speaks of a veiling. Meaning what? Meaning that the realized you, the new you, 
that will one day appear with Christ in glory is now veiled. Meaning it's there, but it's hidden. Let, let me see if I can explain this. We've all been to a wedding, right? Too many weddings, quite frankly. All of us, if we are honest, too many weddings. Always in every wedding, or most of them, things are a little bit different from wedding to wedding, but there's this moment the bride comes down, escorted by her father, go through the whole ceremony, vows and rings and all that kind of stuff, and then there's that moment in time where the pastor says, the groom may now kiss his bride. And at that moment, at that moment, it's the, the time when the bride pulls up her veil and she she shows herself in all of her glory. She will never look better ever again, right? That's as good as it gets. That day, she's been dieting for weeks, facial, whole thing, looks great. Glory of the bride, it's wondrous. But let me ask you a question. When that veil was in front of the bride's face, was she any less a bride? No, she was just veiled. So to us. So to us. We are a bride, aren't we? We're a veiled bride. But, but a wedding's about to take place at some moment. It's about to take place where the groom will meet his bride. And he'll pull back the veil. And then, veiled no longer, presented with Christ in glory. That you is there. Just hidden now. Veiled now. But it's there. Douglas Moo, I don't know if you're a fan of Douglas Moo, but in his commentary on the book of Colossians, he writes, and it's not that you shouldn't be a fan of Douglas Moo, I'm not trying to create tension here, Sid, but he writes, Paul suggests at the present time our heavenly identity is real, but it is hidden. We have certainly not been physically transported to heaven, nor do we who belong to the heavenly realm look any different from those around us who still belong to the world. But verse 4 affirms that this will one day change. In the meantime, our true status is veiled. Hear the words of John, from 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, speaking of Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So those are the promises and the present day realities so let's move on to the second of our two features that we're highlighting out of these 14 verses, that being the practices of the new you. We talk about promises and practices. Paul, Paul calls us to two practices in particular, and I will introduce them, number one, as mortification. I'll double back and I'll explain what that means. Mortification, but the second is meditation. Mortification, meditation. In other words, we must kill what belonged to the old self while focusing now on those things that are good and true. 
as we did previously, let's take, let's take these practices one at a time. So let's begin with mortification. Just notice what Paul writes in verse 5, just one more time. He writes in verse 5 that we are to put to death what is earthly in you, which is what mortification is. To mortify is to put to death. If you've ever used the word mortuary or morgue or mortician, these are people and places that deal with death and dying. And, and hear me, Dunbar Heights, hear me. This is our call now. We are to, verse 9, put off the old self with its practices. To borrow from one commentator who sums it up much better than I ever could, the Christian life is not only about repenting, but death dealing. But when I say that, I can, I can assume some pushback, I think. And if not pushback, confusion. The confusion being, Norm, you just spent 15 minutes talking about how the old self is dead. So why do I have to keep killing it? Why do I have to kill a dead thing and its practices? The answer, and it's a simple answer, we can go deeper, but we don't have time to go deeper. But the simple answer is because of this. Flesh, our, our body. This here, yours, I start doing some crunches. This, this battles the new you. It, it stands opposed. This stands opposed to the new you. Paul explains it this way in Galatians 5.17, that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But when I say that, and you have in mind the promises that we went through, uh, the question could be, so then what's the difference? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, if that old self is dead, but I've entered this, what is the big deal? Where's the encouragement in that? What is the difference? Well, it's a huge difference between then and now. For we are no longer a slave to this. We are no longer obligated to this. But we're freed from it. We, we exist in it, but freed from it. And, really importantly, we're not left to our own devices, are we? We are empowered. Em empowered to destroy the practices of it. Huge difference. What practices specifically? What are we to put to death? Well, Paul gives us two. Two overarching practices. One of them is found in verse 5, and the other is found in verses 8 and 9. The, the first found in verse 5 are our sexual practices. As you notice there, and I'll read it one more time, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That covetousness seems in context to be con connected to more and more sex, just continuing to feed that. So we're to put to death our sexual practices that are not falling under the design and pattern and plan of, of what God has laid out in the scriptures. The second are relational practices. That's verses 8 and 9. Just notice... Notice it one more time with me. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, 
malice, slanders, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So to use the imagery that Paul has given us here, we are to take off those old clothes, but we're not to walk around naked. We are to clothe ourselves with new clothes, which is what verses 12 to 14 is all about. Paul then says, look at verses 12 to 14 with me one more time, put on then as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, all of those things that we are to put on are to flow out of our love for one another. We aren't simply to be patient for patience' sake. We are to be patient because we love. We are to be humble because we love. We are to bear with one another because we love. That's why it binds everything together. If you sort of use the imagery of clothing, you you put on your pants, you put on your your shirt, but what you put over it, that overcoat, that's love. Put this on, put the overcoat on top, it binds it all together. That's Paul's call. Put off those, put on those. Take that off, put it to death, raise this instead in its place. When I read... Uh, verses 12 to 14 specifically, did your, did your mind go anywhere else in the scriptures when that, when that list was given? My mind, when, when I was walking through this in prep for this morning, went to the fruit of the Spirit because that's essentially what we have there. We have the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. That, that's the idea here. So what do we put on? We put on the fruit of the Spirit as we, as we, as we feed the Spirit. We're going to talk about that more as we finish up our time. Then these, these clothes, so to speak, cover us. My mind also goes to Romans 13, 14, where Paul calls us there to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So in simple terms, what are we to clothe ourselves with? Jesus. The the spirit of Jesus in us. The spirit of Jesus covering us. Clothing us. Put on Jesus. But why? In other words, why put these practices to death in the first place? What's, What's the big deal? There are pockets in the church today which say, what's the big deal? We are new creations. What does it matter what we do in our bodies? Why why put them off? I've got assurance. I've got protection. I'm hidden. What's the big deal? Let me give you three reasons very quickly why. The first is seen in verse 6. And that is because of what's coming. Paul writes there that we are to put to death what is earthly in us on account of these. The wrath of God is coming. That's why. In in simple yet sobering terms, God is coming to bring holy and righteous judgment on those who practice such things. So that's the first reason why. The the second, and this really ties into this series as you close it up today, is 
because of its effects, the practice's effect on the local body. Let me get really um, personal with you if I, uh, if I can. To, to not put off the practices, the vices of verse 5 and verses 8 and 9 will impact Dunbar Heights Baptist Church no matter how hard you try to hide them. Those practices will affect this ministry even if nobody knows about them. Which is how we are to understand verse 11. Verse 11 is a weird verse. It doesn't quite make sense. In the midst of what Paul is talking about, that's the verse where Paul says, here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, and so what is this? What, what is Paul getting at when he gives us verse 11? Well, this is, this, is, this is Paul's point. Paul is telling us that when we come to Christ, we're adopted into a family. You are no longer a bunch of individuals, but you are a member, and, and nothing more, but nothing less either. You are a member of a body. Where Christ is all and in all. And therefore, if the practices of verses 5, 8, and 9 mark your life, it won't only affect you, but this family too. It's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, I double-dog dare you. Go home today, make a big bunch of dough. I don't know how you do that. Flour, water, something, right? Big bunch of dough. Then take out some yeast and put it in the dough and try really hard to make that yeast not affect the dough at all. You can't. You can't. Even a little bit of yeast will impact a, a huge batch of dough. So too here. This batch of dough called Dunbar Heights will be affected even by a little bit of yeast that is our sin practice not dealt with. So that's the second reason why. Kill it. Because you don't want it to destroy this place. A third reason why. And it's found in verse 4. And, and it's, it's there. You can gloss over. If you're not careful, you can gloss over it too quick. Why do we kill this stuff, destroy this stuff, put off these practices? Because Christ is your life. Because Christ is your life. And, and if Christ is your life, then, then when he appears, you'll want, you'll want to have lived a life marked by him, won't you? Not marked by those practices that led him to the cross, but the ones you've been freed, freed from because of the cross. Put them off because Jesus is your life. And one day you will appear with him. And you'll see him face to face. So that's why. So that's our, our first practice, mortification. We are to be people who put to death the old self and its practices. Let's make a, a turn for home this morning by looking at the second, and that is, that is meditation. Now, I recognize where we live. We live on the west side of Vancouver, and I recognize when we live on the west side of Vancouver, and I say meditation, it comes with a whole lot of baggage. 
meditation today is most often associated with an emptying or a clearing of the mind. Um, I, I went online and was looking for definitions, modern day definitions of meditation common today, and I, I came across a website, Yoga International. This is how they describe meditation. In meditation, the mind is clear, relaxed, and inwardly focused. From childhood onward, we have been educated only to examine and verify things in the external world. No one has taught us how to look within, to find within, to verify within. Meditation requires an inner state that is still and one-pointed, so that the mind becomes silent. When the mind is silent and no longer distracts you, meditation happens and deepens. The goal of meditation is to go beyond the mind and experience our essential nature, which is described as peace, happiness, and bliss. But as anyone who has tried to meditate knows, the mind itself is the biggest obstacle standing between ourselves and this awareness. The mind is undisciplined and unruly, and it resists any attempts to discipline it or to guide it on a, a particular path. The mind has a mind of its own. Biblical meditation stands absolutely opposed to that idea. In stark contrast to what I just read, Jesus calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, what's next? Mind and strength. Biblical meditation calls us to fill our minds with things that are good, right, and true. Just look at what Paul writes in our text in verses 1 and 2. Seek the things that are above to set our minds on things that are above. Not to go inward, but to go upward. Not to empty, but to fill. Biblical meditation calls us to go to heaven with our hearts and minds and to live here in ways that pour out of what we have glimpsed when we went there. And what do we glimpse? I almost called you West Side. Dunbar Heights. What do we, what do we glimpse when we go to heaven? Just notice it. It's so sweet. Verse 1, don't miss it. Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what we glimpse. Meaning what? Meaning his work is finished. Meaning your Lord, your Savior, your friend <clears throat> sits in a position of love and prominence and intimacy with the Father. It means you bask in the truth that he's for you and in you and you in him. And therefore, it's to be reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you don't go to places of peace. It means you go to the Prince of Peace and you focus your eyes on him, the author and perfecter of your faith. Go there, go to him, fill your mind with him. He loves you as he loves the Father. And the Father loves you as he loves the Son. Seek those places, set your mind on those things. Whatever is true, Paul writes, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. 
There is nothing more dangerous than a so-called empty mind. To, to want to empty our minds ignores the fact that we have an enemy. It, it ignores the fact that most often the battlefield is, battlefield is the battlefield of the mind. It ignores the fact that Jesus himself said, look, you've got to be really careful. If you clean out the house and just leave it empty, our enemy will return. It will be seven times worse. We're to fill our minds. Speak things above. Meditate on things that are good and true. All of this. Well, before I go on, let me just say this. We need to return when we go to heaven from these heavenly so-called escapades, well, of course, but return having gone there first. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All of this, and this is where I was going just a moment ago, is why Paul says in a a verse coming just after where we finished off in Colossians 3, notice it in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is why I'm such a fan of this ministry. Because you're dedicated to the Word of God. You teach the Word of God. You teach it like you believe it's the Word of God. And it dwells in you and it looks good on you. Well, my time is almost, almost done. But before I wrap up, Here is why this is so all-important, meaning these practices. It's all-important because mortification doesn't happen in the moment. It happens beforehand. Mortification begins in our times of meditation. You see, going back to our sexual practices, mortification doesn't take place when you're on the couch with your girlfriend, lights are down, music, music is on. It's not going to happen there. Mortification oftentimes does not take place there. When does mortification take place? In the morning when you get up, before the date started. And you meditate on things that are good and true and noble. And nor does mortification, when you think about the relational dynamics of verses 8 and 9, nor, mortification doesn't begin when you're having coffee with your friend and that other person's name comes up. And you spend the next hour slandering, gossiping, tearing down. It doesn't begin there. Mortification takes place in the morning when you meditate on living that day, not tearing down but building others up. Mortification follows Meditation. Mortification, in fact, rests on it. Great text. Dallas Willard was right about this text. And so, as I close, I'll leave you with a couple of questions. The first is this. What's earthly in you? What provisions are you still making room for? What what 
yeast have you perhaps brought into this ministry that you're believing won't affect it? What needs to be put off? What, what needs to be taken off and put on instead? And, and perhaps it's a new whole you. Because that's where it all starts. Because this text isn't talking about behavior modification. It's talking about a total you transformation. And so for some of you, perhaps that's where it begins today. To put off the old self and put on the new self. That happens how? By faith. It's a work of God. By faith responding to the gracious gift of the Father through the Son who died for us. And saying, I I want my old gone. I want the new to come. And God, in his grace, because he's faithful and he's just, will make you new. In an instant. I'm the worst snapper. I wish I could snap better. In an instant. So what's earthly in you? A final question. What do you think about? What, What do you give your mind to most? What are you believing now but should be believing instead? Are, are you seeking things above? Are you looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, or are your eyes more, more times than not down here focused? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we believe with all of our heart that, that every dot on every I, every curve on every letter of what we just read is your word to us. And therefore, by way of your written word and, and the Holy Spirit's work in it and through it, we believe that you have spoken to us. And that we are not to be mere hearers of the word, but doers of it. And so I pray there is something, I, would, I just have to believe there is something in these verses that are for every single one of us. Whether it's a, a need to be encouraged in the promises and the realities that are ours in Christ, then I pray that that would be taken today, encouraged, so that the enemy would have no work of, work and effect and be a destroyer of faith. And, and perhaps for some of us, it's, it's the challenge of, of considering that there are things in our lives that we have to cut off, put to death, and, and be replaced with, with the sweet fruit of the Spirit, clothed with Jesus. So convict where you need to convict, but also empower and encourage us, strengthen us, have the heartfelt, volitional desire to move from what we need to and move to what you have called us to instead. We love you and thank you for all of this in Jesus' name.